morning. Sure, you all have heard a lot about uh, COVID-19 in the news recently, otherwise known as the coronavirus. And if you have, then you know that uh, it has now made landfall in the United States. So the West Coast uh, up in Washington area uh, has seen a number of cases, more than 80 cases and 14 deaths. Uh, most of them from a Seattle area nursing home. California is treating 70 more cases and more uh, every single day. And it has reached the East Coast as well. More than 2,700 people in New York City are under quarantine. And of course, we just recently had two deaths here in the state of Florida. Both of them travelers to Florida, but still, it's, uh, it's becoming a thing. My parents attend the uh, Jacksonville Chinese Church, and so for the past few weeks, they've been facing a challenge as a number of their members have family in China, and over the course of the past few months, they've even traveled to and fro from China, so their attendance is down 50% right now because everybody's playing it a bit safe and just wanting to be an overabundance of caution. And then this past week, I uh, was, had a long day uh, working, different meetings, and so I decided to sit down in Arby's for lunch. So I was at the one right across from the Avenues Mall, and uh, so I, I, grabbed my, I uh, grabbed my lunch dinner. It was a mid-afternoon mid snack meal. So I grabbed my food, and I sat down with my back against the window to the parking lot, right? And I was just sitting down and eating, and I was, so I was facing the interior of the restaurant, and there was a number of people there. There was a number of families and people just kind of sitting around having conversation. I don't know what this is. I just kind of grabbed it. So anyway, having conversation, and we're just kind of, and they're just talking. And I just had my iPad because I just like to read and disengage my mind for a little bit. So I was reading my iPad, and during the course of that time, like, every once in a while, I realized that I would kind of turn my head and <coughs> just to clear my, my throat, finished up my meal, looked up from my iPad and realized there was no one on my side of Arby's. Everyone was sitting on the other side, kind of back. Nobody looked at me. They just kind of were all sitting on the other side of Arby's. And I'm thinking, wow, Chinese man coughing? That's a problem here. And I'm thinking, all right, maybe I need to use this to my advantage. You know, anytime I want a little extra privacy, just <clears throat> So anyway, I... Uh, Part of me thought it was hilarious uh, that there just seems to be, you know, that being able to kind of just a little cup of coughs and the effect that it can have. The other part of me is intrigued by how differently people act when they're driven by fear. Whether that's rational fear or irrational fear, we tend to act a bit differently. So with that in mind, I want to welcome you all to Awaken Church this morning on Pajama Day because we had daylight savings time. My, uh, my son actually told me on the way over here, he's like, Dad, I don't know if they're going to be doing uh, daylight savings time anymore after this Sunday. So that's kind of sad. Uh, so we'll have to figure out another way to squeeze pajamas into our service. But seriously, how often do you get two middle-aged men dressed up like Captain America, right? And I mean, Hispanic and Asian to, to boot, to have that diversity mixed together under the banner of, of Captain A. So that's really pretty fantastic. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Frank. I am one of the pastors here, and it is my joy and honor to be able to launch our church into a new series. Uh, over the course of the past five weeks, we've been, or four weeks, we've been going through a series on relationships. And now we're transitioning from that series on relationships into Jesus. And more specifically, into a sermon that Jesus taught 
to not only his followers, but to a crowd, to a multitude. And it is a, a very specific sermon he gave early in, his, uh, over, early in the course of his ministry that we now today call the Sermon on the Mount. It encompasses three chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It is uh, spoken by Jesus to a crowd in Galilee. And the sermon is the longest continuous monologue of Jesus found in the Bible. And during the discourse, Jesus is teaching his listeners what it means to be a part of the kingdom, what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a wholehearted, committed follower of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus. And what Jesus shares is, if you want to be my committed, wholehearted follower, it requires a reorienting of your entire life. To turn away from the world, from being a citizen of the world or whatever nation or whatever city that you're a part of, and to embrace being a citizen of a new kingdom. A kingdom built on grace and a kingdom built on gospel rather than law. And so this is the type of kingdom that, and this is the kind of life that Jesus is introducing to those who hear. With the understanding that Jesus is the king of this new kingdom. So as a church, we're going to spend five weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount as an extended on-ramp, taking us into Easter Sunday. And so with that, we're going to dive into the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins with the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes are a series of blessings found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 11. And during this, uh, it introduces this Sermon on the Mount, and they comprise 10 of the first 11 verses and focus our attention on the values that define citizens of the kingdom. Values that define citizens of the kingdom. So I'm going to go through them and read this extended passage, the Beatitudes, and then we're going to take the time to unpack each one. So Matthew chapter 5, if you want to follow along, starting in verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are or who were before you. That, those are the Beatitudes. So we'll dive in and start with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, in our world today, there's a lot of differences on what something or even someone is worth. I shared earlier about the coronavirus. So as a responsible pastor, one of the things I was doing over the course this past week, you know, not including exponential, no, even at exponential, is I was 
trying to find these uh, antibacterial, uh, what is it, hand sanitizers, these nice big pumps, right? So I went to a, a number of different Walmarts. I think I went to three different Walmarts, went to Home Depot, went to a number of places trying to find them. Sold out, no surprise. Went on to Amazon and found uh, most of them were sold out. And then there are these third-party vendors that decided to charge for a 10-fluid-ounce bottle of uh, hand sanitizer, 20 bucks. Um, these large two-liter bottles, which I was thinking, oh, okay, that's what I kind of want. A large two-liter bottle with a pump. Those normally sell for about $20 at Walmart. They were selling two of them. I saw a listing two of them for over $300. That's pretty insane. And, but that's kind of how our world works, right? The value of people and things fluctuate over time, fluctuate depending on circumstances and how much we feel these things should be worth. But that's not how the Bible works. And that's one of the things that God is sharing, or Jesus is sharing here, saying in the scriptures, according to God, our value and our worth does not fluctuate over time. It doesn't vary because of circumstances. It doesn't change based on what we do or what we do not do. It's set by the cost of what it took to redeem us, the blood of Jesus. In 1 Peter 1, uh, the prophet or the... Uh, the disciple shares, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Our value, we know and understand, is greater than anything else in all of the world because we have been bought with the blood of Christ, right? That is how God defines our value. How much, that's how we define value, period, right? How do you know how much something is worth? By how much you pay for it. And so how do we know how much our lives are worth? How much God has paid for us. So then who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are not the ones who are physically poor, but the ones who are humble. The ones who don't overstate or underestimate or understate their worth in Christ. So when it comes to this idea of our value, we are worth more than anything on earth because God paid for us with the blood of Jesus. And yet, let me be clear here, when we think about or imagine our worth, it is not simply defined by how much was paid for us, which is the blood of Jesus, but also God says our worth needs to be measured alongside God himself. And when you do that, you realize, okay, so yes, we're infinitely valuable, and yet still, even with that, before God, we are as dust. This is kind of how, this kind of explains why, uh, so let me go this way. So suppose I, uh, God, I don't know, whoever, somebody, magically, every single one of you were worth $10 million. That, right? That's your, that's your, the value of who you are. That's your net worth. You have a net worth of $10 million. That's a lot of money. That's enough for you to spend the rest of your life living comfortably. And you would be considered rich by 99% of the world. But then, with your $10 million net value, suppose we put you next to Mike Bloomberg, who is just, up until this past week, running for president. Do you know how much Mike Bloomberg is worth? His net value, right, his net worth is 60 plus, $60 billion. So even though at a $10 million value, right? You would be the envy of 99% of the world next to Mike Bloomberg, who is worth $60 billion. You would be considered 
poor. So in the same way, when we talk about this idea of value, right, who it is that is poor in spirit, being poor in spirit recognizes our value before God, recognizes that we are of infinite worth because Jesus gave his blood for us. At the same time, we are as dust in comparison to God. This is why Abraham called himself dust and ashes in Genesis 18. It's why Jacob said, I am not the least bit worthy before God in Genesis 32. This is why David said that he had a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart before God in Psalm 51. Job said he despised himself. Je um, uh, Isaiah said he had unclean lips. Peter called himself a sinful man, and Paul called himself the foremost of sinners. Because they recognized that though they were of infinite worth because of Christ before God, we are but dust and ash. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. Living in light of both of these truths will bring us into the blessing and fullness of kingdom life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The idea of mourning here is to experience deep grief. And even more specifically, the idea behind uh, experiencing deep grief is uh, the context is experiencing deep grief when it comes to our own sinfulness. Those who deep, uh, grieve deeply over sin and the wickedness of our own hearts. So we just shared that being poor in spirit means that we recognize our, that though our worth in Christ is great, but before God is nothing. So what do you think happens when we sin, right? So that's our worth, it's set, but then we sin. In the eyes of God, we're not diminished in value in any way, shape, or form, but for ourselves, we feel that way, do we not? When we sin as Christians, we feel a bit diminished because what we've done with our sin is we've erected this little barrier between us and God broken through by the blood of Jesus, but we set that little barrier, and it can interrupt the fellowship that we have with our Father and our King. And what Jesus is sharing here is for those who recognize and then grieve over their own wickedness, right, their own sinfulness, and what Jesus is saying is those who recognize and respond that way will experience the blessing of being comforted. That's what God offers is if you choose not to hide your sin or cover up your sin, pretend your sin's not there, but you say, you know what, Lord, here is who I am, wretched as I am. I have betrayed your heart. I've gone against your commands, and I've sinned before you. And, Lord, I confess, and I throw myself at your feet. We mourn over sin, then God will comfort us. And that comfort will look like forgiveness, healing, and restoration. The only way we can be restored fully to have whatever barriers are set between us that we set because of our sin completely removed is to be able to mourn over our sin and to experience that restoration through God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of meek, I love one definition that's oftentimes given, is the idea of meek is strength or power under control. So here's what meekness practically means it means that in a situation in a context where i'm honoring or serving god even though i might have the right or the power to act a certain way i choose to restrain myself for the sake of another 
even though I have the power and ability to act in a certain context, I choose to restrain myself for the sake of another. So one example of this is if I'm acting on God's behalf and I get criticized or insulted for that act, then I might choose to, def- I, that even though I could choose to defend myself, I choose to restrain and trust that God is the one who will vindicate me. Does that make sense? That's meekness. It's strength. It's power under control. So G.K. Chesterton once shared this interesting idea about meekness. He talks about, or, or it's a reflection on our culture today, and he shared this. He said that in our culture today, humility has shifted from ambition to conviction. Probably doesn't make a lot of sense for you. That's okay. I'm going to explain it. But he says that humility has shifted from ambition to conviction. And what he's meaning by this is he's saying God designed mankind. That's all of us, right? God designed mankind to have a certain degree of doubt about ourselves, to serve as a check on our ambition so that we don't overextend ourselves in pride and strive to be like God, which was the sin of Eve and Adam. So God designed man to have some doubt about themselves, to serve as a check on our own ambition. But though God designed man to have a checked ambition, we are to be unchecked and unwavering in our conviction, right? In our beliefs in God. And what the world has done is, and that's what G.K. Chesterton is sharing, is what the world is doing is reversing that. And it's saying that we're trying to, the world is pushing mankind into questioning truth, questioning conviction, and then unleashing ambition, right? He's saying, you know what, if I can get you to the place where you doubt what you believe, you start questioning what you believe, then you start losing conviction. And, and what is this doubt thing about ourselves? Let's remove that and let's unrestrain ambition. And what's so bad about being like God? That's what the world is doing. Does that make sense? This is what G.K. Chesterton is sharing, then in that context, the meek, the meek are the ones who push back. They restrain their own ambition, but stand steadfast on conviction. That is what defines the meek. And for the meek, Jesus says that men and women like this, who restrain their own ambition, but are unwavering on conviction, these are the ones who will inherit the earth. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is sharing on this truth and teaching that the wisdom of this world, so there's a context in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, he's saying that the wisdom of this world is like foolishness to God. And the thoughts of the wise in this age are worthless to God. So this is what he's saying. He's saying all those things that you consider to be wise and held in high esteem, God despises. And then he says this in verses 21 into 23. So don't boast about following a particular human leader, for everything belongs to you whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future, everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Those of you who are meek, who have chosen to restrain our ambition and not strive to be like God, but satisfied with being a child of God, and are unswerving and unwavering on conviction built on God's truth, we are the ones who have already been given everything, even as we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit 
the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So at the end of January, uh, Patrick Burke, who's our home group leader here at the barn, uh, decided to lead our home group in a fast. Uh, it was only one day, 24 hours, sunset to sunset. But the cool idea that he threw out there was that let's, as a home group, have a fast so that we might pray with intent about Church Plant 2020. And then the idea was we would break that fast at dinner as a home group together. So, of course, right before a home group, right before we start praying over the food, we're seeing everyone in our home group at their hungriest, right? So this is kind of what it means. So if you've ever fasted before, maybe you understand this idea of it better, of what it means to be in hunger and thirst, to physically hunger and thirst and to desire nourishment. Right? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's tying this idea of hunger and thirst, often is associated through a fast, and he's tying it to a passion for righteousness. And so what he's saying is that for Christians who, like those Christians who fast over food, who cultivate, if you choose to cultivate the same hunger and the same thirst for righteousness, God is going to satisfy you. I don't know how many of us um, really wrestle with this idea uh, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but the crowd that was listening to Jesus understood because they were living under an oppressive government, the Roman Empire and the Roman rule. Uh, they were enduring oppressive taxation. They were being persecuted uh, for some of the things that they believed. They had limited freedom, and they were starved for God to make things right. And they believed that was going to happen through his promised Messiah. And here, what Jesus' response is, that what God will promise for those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what God is going to give you is satisfaction. Do you know what satisfaction means? Here's an example. So how many of you eat or make it a habit to eat until you're satisfied. Do you really? Good for you. That is exactly how we do it. Because that's not how most Americans work, right? Most Americans eat until you're full, which is not the same thing. Or even some Americans eat until they're more than full, which is also a bad thing and probably why there's so many obese Americans in, in the country, right? No slam anywhere there. Anyway, the idea of Eating until we're satisfied, right? Which you understand is eating until our appetite has been adequately curbed. Not necessarily eating until we can eat no more. Do you understand the distinction? Satisfied is I eat or I get until my appetite is curbed, not until I reach the limit of what I want to experience or go beyond that limit. So when God says here that my blessing to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is that they'll be satisfied, it's really important to keep that in context because there are many of us who think, well, if that is true, then why is God allowing injustice today to happen, right? Why is he allowing injustice? Why did he give me, he gave me a D on this test when I should have gotten a C based on how much I, I worked and how hard I studied and all this stuff. Do you understand? That's an injustice. God, take care of that teacher and get me that C, right? Every perceived slight we can interpret as injustice, and we think, God, if you don't fulfill our expectation when it comes to justice, then maybe you aren't as good as you say you are. 
and that's wrong, right? What we want is not a right expectation to place upon God. God says, here's what satisfied means. It means you will see justice happen in this world, but not fully. But you will be fully satisfied when I return. Because when I return, I will set all things right. Be patient and wait until that day. There is a reason why I am doing things this way. Trust me. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And for those who do, they shall be satisfied. Psalm 145 says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Not fill or overfill, satisfy. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So who are the merciful? The merciful are those who choose to be benevolent and gracious towards those who are suffering. That's what defines the merciful. So the question that should come up is, well, who isn't benevolent and gracious towards those who are suffering? Because they need to be beaten, right? So we should all be merciful. And I, I would agree with you. And yet there is something that oftentimes keeps us from exercising mercy. And maybe it's easiest to understand that when we look at what we can oftentimes replace mercy with when we view suffering. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is dealing with Pharisees who are struggling and wrestling with the same thing, that though they knew they ought to be mercy, they were choosing another response when they saw suffering around them. And what Jesus tells them in Matthew 9, 13 is, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the context of this passage is that Pharisees are criticizing Jesus for eating and sitting down with and spending time with sinners. And Jesus' response is, what are you guys thinking here, right? What are you guys doing? Our response towards sinners should be compassion and mercy first, and you are responding with judgment. And he's saying, I want your heart of compassion more than I want your religious duty. Because that's how the Pharisees were justifying their action, right? That we can't hang out with sinners because they would make us unclean. And Jesus is saying, I want your heart of compassion more than I want your religious duty. And the reason why I am here is not to congratulate the righteous, but to save the sinner. Will you join me or are you going to get out of the way? No, I'm going to do something even better. Go home and do some homework. Right? And here's what I want you to consider. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Another passage later in the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus shares the same idea. Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus is not saying that our acting on faith is wrong. He's just saying, guys, keep it in context and remember what is most important and prioritize those things first. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. 
Mercy is one of those weightier things that Jesus says, this is what I want you to focus on. Don't neglect the weightier things by focusing on trifling, uh, trifles instead. So what about you? How does this look in your life? Are you faithfully giving your tithes but ignoring the poor and the needy around you? Are you serving the church but ignoring your neighbors? Are you spending more time praying over your meals than you are over the lost? That's a challenging one. And are we teaching and learning in ways that tickle the ears or transform lives? Which is it? What are we doing here? Are we getting caught up in trivia or are we really giving ourselves to the weightier things of God? Blessed are the merciful. For it is the merciful who demonstrate compassion on those who need it the most. The merciful are the ones who offer forgiveness to those whose sins are greatest. That's why Jesus ran to the sinners. They were the ones most in need. The merciful are the ones who offer hope to those who are in the darkest places. Are you spending time in those darkest places bringing hope? Are you spending time with those great sinners sharing forgiveness? Blessed are the merciful, because if this is the way you live, God will rush to show his mercy to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24 says, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. So the word for purity in uh, this passage means to be clean, blameless, unstained by guilt, as through purification by fire or through pruning. That's an important distinction because what Jesus is sharing here is that purity is a forged purity, not that you naturally came out that way. Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, here's what purity of heart means. Purity of heart is to will one thing, right? To be single-minded in devotion. What is that one thing you will passionately pursue? Because if it's the glory of God, then what purity of heart means is if I am seeking him first and foremost, then I will cleanse myself and clear myself of anything else that would interrupt that desire. That is what it means to be pure in Max Lucado shared this really interesting story about a Shah, Shah or uh, Emperor Shah Jahan, right? And uh, when the Shah's favorite wife died, he was broken in sadness, according to legend. And what he did is, after he had her placed in a coffin, in this nice, beautiful wooden coffin, he had that coffin placed in the middle of this great field. And he commanded his people and said that around my favorite wife, we are going to raise up the grandest temple in all the land. No expenses spared. And so the people got to work. And so he started to build this temple around this coffin that was in this huge field. And they started building up, and it was grand. The Shah literally spared no expense. And as the weeks passed, and as the months passed, and as this, this, uh, this temple this, it just became more and more glorious, the Shah only grew more and more obsessive 
about his work. And one day, as he was walking from one end of the temple to another, he happened to bump his leg and cut his leg on this wooden box. And he was so irritated, this dusty wooden box, that he called over one of the workers and he said, get this box out of here and burn it. Without realizing that what he had inadvertently done was burn the coffin of that dead wife that he was intending to honor. I don't know if the story is true or not. I thought it was pretty cool. But the question is, who would do something like that? You start off to honor your wife, and you get distracted and fixated on other things that the most important thing that you set out to do, you end up burning as garbage. It's a crazy story. How could the Shah possibly forget why the temple was being built, what the effort and expense was going into? But maybe we do the same thing, don't we? Maybe we uh, sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, the reason why we come to church is because we want this really great church experience. We want to see our friends. We want to sing some good songs, uh, maybe learn some good life tips from the pastor. And then we go home thinking, man, church was great today. Instead of thinking, man, Jesus was awesome today. Was Jesus great too? Did you really enjoy your time with him? Or did you miss him in the midst of doing church? Right? Were you mindful? Are you being mindful to put Jesus front and center today? To listen to his Holy Spirit and say, Spirit, what is it that you want to speak into my life and have me apply today? Maybe it has nothing to do with what the pastor said. Maybe it's something that I experienced that you said to me when I was worshiping. Maybe it's something shared with me by a brother or sister in this time. Whatever the case, who are you listening to? Who has your attention? If you want to see God, it begins with purity of heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Have a single-minded focus. Always keep him front and center, and then you'll see him. You won't miss him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, if you read the scriptures, uh, what you'll find really quickly is that throughout the scriptures, the Bible is about God seeking peace with us, relationship with us. There was peace in the beginning when you read in Genesis 1 and 2, before Adam and Eve sinned, there was peace. When Adam and Eve sinned, they broke that peace. And then God has ever since been seeking to restore peace between mankind and himself. And he used promise, used law, used uh, sacrifice, used discipline, used prophecy, used proclamation, and even used exile in the Old Testament in an attempt to restore what we broke. But none of it quite did the job. So in the New Testament, God chose a different strategy. God has offered us his only begotten son, Jesus. That through Jesus' life, death, burial, or crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, lasting peace between rebellious women and between rebellious men might be made, right? So for those who put their trust in Christ, we will experience redemption and reconciliation. This is what God has done. He's like, you broke the peace I will do everything I can to restore it. And he's done it through Jesus and says, for those who believe, you'll experience the blessing and joy of redemption and reconciliation. 
So it should be no surprise that what Jesus is saying here when he says, blessed is the peacemaker, for they'll be called sons of God, is he's saying, guys, if you follow in my dad's footsteps and you make it a priority to engage in the same type of peacemaking that he does, you're going to be seen as his kids because that's the business your father is into. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons or daughters of God. And if you think about it, what a title to have, isn't that? To be called a child of God. Seriously, what title can this world offer you that will be greater than to be called a child of God? Or maybe another way to think about it is a thousand years from now, what title could the world possibly give you that would be of more value than to be known as a daughter or son of God. There isn't one, is there? The key to being known as a peace or as a son or daughter of God is to be a peacemaker. So this past week, 17 of us were uh, part of this conference called Exponential. It was a church planting conference. And uh, one of the lessons that had, was, has been striking to me is that there is an opportunity right now for Christians to seize to be able to shine brightly as light and salt to the world if we simply choose to collaborate, right? To take seriously Jesus' hope in the Garden of Gethsemane that we would be united. That's what Jesus prayed, right? Let them be one even as you and I are one, Father. Right? And to live this way would help the world see that we are Jesus' disciples by the love we have one another, right? For one another, regardless of race, gender, nationality, ideology, or denomination. That this is the type of life that we are called to, and this is what it looks like to be a peacemaker. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right, for theirs shall be the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when I think about this idea of persecution, one of the stories in the scriptures I go to pretty quickly is the story of John the Baptist. Most of you know who John the Baptist is. He's the cousin of Jesus, and he's the one who is proclaiming, you know, repent, repent. For there's one who comes after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, who will be the Lamb of God, right? This is what John the Baptist was given to proclaim. But then he's arrested. He's put in prison. And this is what happens when he is arrested unrighteously by Herod and in prison. He starts to question Jesus. And so this is a story that's shared in Matthew 11, verses 2 to 6. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, go back to John and tell them what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are healed, the deaf here, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. John, lest we forget, was the one who not only announced Jesus, but baptized Jesus. John was the one who saw God come down, descend like a dove, right? 
and he heard the words, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, right? I mean, this is the same John, but now he's in prison. He's experiencing persecution. He's in a dark place, and he questions Jesus. And this is why I come to this story often, because that's what I find I do too, that when I'm in a dark place, when I'm overwhelmed by trials or discouragement or frustration, and I just go into this dark hole, I remember, you know what? Or my tendency is I start questioning God. I start questioning Jesus, right? And to realize that here's John, and he did the exact same thing. Even worse, right? Because John, you had one job, right? You had one job, right? To announce Jesus to the world, and now in prison, you think you've missed him. And then Jesus answers him. And the way Jesus answers is really remarkable, right? Because Jesus' response is like, dude, I didn't know you were there. Dude, I'm coming right now. We out, right? We're out of here. He doesn't come and tell John, dude, we're on our way. Rescue's coming, right? He doesn't say, I'm going to send God and his angels, and they're going to set you free. It's not what he tells them. Instead, what Jesus' response to John in prison, in that dark place, where he's questioning the Messiah, his own cousin, right? Jesus tells him, everything is going according to plan. Everything is going according to plan. What? That's what you're telling me? In the midst of my trial and my suffering, you have the audacity to tell me this is what you plan? Those who are broken are being fixed. Those who are dead, physically and spiritually, they're being given life. The good news is being proclaimed. Everything is going according to plan, John. And blessed are you, my friend, my cousin, my brother, if you don't fall away because I don't meet your expectations. That's Jesus' message to John. It wasn't the answer I think that John was expecting, but it was probably the one he needed to hear. John was looking for an answer to earthly problems, and Jesus says that the problems of this world is much bigger than the temporary ones you're facing right now. Your future is secure, brother. Persevere. What's most important is what is God doing, and is it continuing to move forward? And if it is, take joy and refuge in that. Amen. I hope you don't miss it, um, that message and that heart, because that's what this series over the course of the next five weeks is designed to do. It's to help us, church, focus on the kingdom rather than on earth. We oftentimes focus too much on earth stuff, and so we get caught up in our own discouragement, our own disappointment, our own things when things don't work out right, how frustrated, and how nice and convenient it would be if God were, instead of being God, be a cosmic butler instead to kind of do whatever I tell him to do. But that's simply not how God operates, is it? And this is what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, guys, this is what kingdom life looks like. It's probably not what you expect, but it's the truth. And if you want to be a part of the kingdom, if you want to be a citizen in the kingdom, live this way. And it will transform your life in ways you cannot even comprehend right now. And you might not find life being how you planned it, but it will be better than you could possibly imagine. Will you trust me? 
Over the course of the next few weeks, Andrew's going to share next week on law. Richard Dubay is going to be sharing after that. Stephen Freeman will be sharing the week after that. So it's going to be exciting. We're going to have a really cool lineup of uh, brothers to share. It's going to be kind of a free-for-all. But uh, I hope you guys are looking forward to learning and growing under these men. Amen? All right, let me close and out in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this time, for this morning, for being able to dip our feet into the water of what it looks like to live the kingdom life. And it can see that, God, we have been for the past 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, however long we have had here on this earth, we've had enough, plenty of experience living life according to the world's rules. And God, I pray that we would agree together that we've had enough of that and we're willing to give kingdom living a shot. More than a shot, we're willing to devote ourselves to kingdom living. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the conviction to do so, that we would be women and men of courage that would choose to live to please an audience of one, that we'd stop working our lives to please all the people around us and live simply to please you. And God, I pray that this series, going through the Sermon on the Mount, would teach us what it means to live as citizens of kingdom rather than as citizens of the world. And that we would commit ourselves to that way of living. God, we love you so much. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your great and deep love for us and towards us. We thank you that you have deposited your Holy Spirit in us as a promise of what is to come that whatever dissatisfaction we might feel in this world, in this life, is simply temporary. That is the great promise we've been given. It is just a, for a breath of time that we still have all of eternity to look forward to. And in that eternity, all things are set right by the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God who has the power to do that. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.